climate change is forcing us to have really difficult conversations and make difficult decisions and decide our priorities about water use right now. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, it may not be well known, but people will understand that water is our most precious resource and water statewide and worldwide is becoming scarce, if not very scarce. According to the World Health Organization, an estimated 55 million people globally are affected by droughts every year, and water shortages are the most serious hazard to livestock and crops in nearly every part of the world. By 2025, two-thirds of the world's population may face water shortages, and by 2030, as many as 700 million people are expected to be at risk of being displaced. But certainly, it's here now. And for the last nine years, there's been an ongoing legal battle between Texas and New Mexico over the groundwater pumping along the Rio Grande. It's a region where water supplies, like many others, are dwindling due to increased demand along the drought and warmer temperatures brought on by climate change. Settlement has not been reached in the Rio Grande matter, so trials set to start next January. Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to spotlight water law. We're going to discuss droughts, erratic climate events, and what's being done to eradicate these water-centric issues through laws and policy. And to help us better understand this issue, we're joined today by Rhett Larson. He is the Richard Morrison Professor of Water Law at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. He's a faculty fellow in the Center for Law and Global Affairs and the Center for Law, Science, and Innovation. He's also a senior research fellow with the Kyle Center for Water Policy at ASU's Morrison Institute for Public Policy. Professor Larson's research and teaching interests are in property law, administrative law, and environmental and natural resource law, and in particular, domestic and international water law and policy. Rhett is also the author of Just Add Water, Solving the World's Problems Using Its Most Precious Resource. You can find it at Oxford University Press, was published two years ago in 2020. Welcome to the show, Rhett. Thank you very much. Well, Rhett, most of us aren't very familiar with water law. It's a pretty specialized area of the law. Uh, in the context of the drought that the West is facing right now, what, what does water law have to do with it? Oh, water law has just about everything to do with it. So if you imagine a situation where you have millions of people who all want access to the same scarce resource and there's not enough to, to satisfy all of those demands, then law decides how we prioritize who has ownership in those water rights. And this ranges from very small scale issues, uh, you know, two small ranches that share a well all the way up to large international issues between the United States and Mexico and how they show, uh, share the Colorado River. So the law sort of dictates those issues all the way down. I tell people that water law is a, is a lot like bankruptcy law, where there is a whole lot of legal rights to a scarce resource that can't satisfy all of those legal rights. So water law is a lot about how to allocate those scarce resources between competing legal interests. Well, it does sound like we're going bankrupt with uh, water as, as much as we read in the news. What about the drought and how, is it, how does water law affect how it's going to be allocated? 
Well, at the sort of the at the state level in the Western United States, uh, water laws sort of dictated by prior appropriation, so a first in time, first in right regime, not that dissimilar from calling shotgun uh, if you're looking to who's going to sit in the front seat of a car. So whoever gets to the water first, puts it to beneficial use has a superior right to that quantity of water for that use over any subsequent user. So if uh, if somebody shows up in 1890 and they divert water to irrigate corn uh, and they divert 10 acre feet, and I'll use acre feet a lot, acre feet is about 326,000 gallons or it's one acre flooded to one foot. Uh, if they divert 10 acre feet in 1890 to irrigate corn, and then someone shows up in 1900 and they divert 10 acre feet to uh, mine for copper, and one year there's only eight acre feet left in the river. Well, the person who has the 1890 right gets eight acre feet. The person with the 1900 water right gets nothing. If there's 12 acre feet, the person with the with the 1890 right gets 10 acre feet. And the person with the 1900 right gets two acre feet. So that's the way the law dictates how we share shortage uh, between water users. Groundwater law is a little bit different. Uh, it's regulated in a different way, but it still allocates resources for when we're competing over groundwater law. And then at the interstate level, it's very complicated. So there are transboundary interstate compacts that are part of the process for deciding states that share the same river, like uh, many states share the Colorado River. How they divide that up is dictated by interstate compacts and by a whole series of Supreme Court decisions. Wow, it sure does sound complicated. And there are a couple of uh, compacts, right? There is the Rio Grande Compact. And what is it that controls the Colorado River? Well, compacts are an increasingly common way for states to manage their relationships between over shared rivers. So historically, states would sue each other, and the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction over lawsuits between states. And so it would go straight to the United States Supreme Court, where they would engage in what was called equitable apportionment. People got nervous about having nine judges determine the, their water supply. So they would negotiate interstate compacts, and those compacts would be approved by Congress Ultimately, states still sue each other over the compacts, and that still goes to the Supreme Court. But compacts govern interstate water rights all over the country. There are compacts in the Delaware River Basin. There are compacts in the Great uh, the Great Lakes. There are compacts in the Republican River, the Arkansas River, the Red River. There is a compact that governs the relationship over the Colorado River. Uh, it was enacted or it was agreed to in 1922, but it is only one part of a very complex series of laws that govern states' relationships over the Colorado River. What do we do in times of drought? I mean, we just each cut allocations and hope for the best? Well, the law is pretty particular about what we do in drought. So at, you know, at the state level in prior appropriation, we give water to the senior water right holders and we take water away from the junior water right holders. Now, the law dictates that as the default rule. What happens in the real world is we negotiate with each other and junior water right holders will acquire temporary leases to senior water right holders' rights, or they will acquire additional groundwater rights to help them ride out a drought. In interstate water law, it's much more complicated. So that's sort of the big news right now is the shortage in the Colorado River Basin between states. The way that we're managing drought in that instance is that in 2007, uh, the Department of the Interior issued what are called shortage sharing guidelines that dictate at different levels of the reservoir in Lake Mead uh, how states take cuts to the Colorado River. Then in 2019, the states agreed to something called the Drought Contingency Plan that added extra layers of cuts uh, that we accept as the reservoir level drops. Uh, and each level that it drops requires different cuts for different states. 
who is it that manages all this? I mean, does the public have any right in this or is this something that's governed by election officials? Uh, well, it, it varies between states. So in each individual state, you will have a different water management regime. Sometimes the water management agency is the state engineer's office. Uh, sometimes it's uh, very sort of uh, distributed and sort of at the grassroots level where there will be regional irrigation districts or regional groundwater management districts. In Arizona, for example, we have the Arizona Department of Water Resources, which is the agency that oversees all of Arizona's water resources and manages its internal water rights and is also the voice of Arizona when negotiating with other states. So every state has a slightly different management situation, but it sort of depends. Are they being, are they elected officials? Are they appointed by the governor? It varies between states. And what role does money play in all of this? Is there a social justice issue that we need to be concerned about here? Do Is everybody treated fairly? Or like, you know, here in Southern California, we have the famous MWD, Metropolitan Water District, that seems to be the big 800-pound gorilla. Well, money has lots to do with it. One thing we say in water policy a lot is that water doesn't flow downhill. It flows to money. Most water problems can be solved if you're willing to spend enough money. If you're willing to spend enough money on desalination, uh, then you can make all the water that you want, uh, but you're just going to have to charge a lot of money for that water. So money plays a big part of it, and there are definitely equity issues, social equity issues when it comes to water quality and to water distribution. But those social equity issues can vary. So, for example, take California. Uh, the Metropolitan Water District uh, manages uh, Colorado River water flowing into San Diego, into Los Angeles. But the Imperial Irrigation District, uh, which is an irrigation district in Southern California in the Imperial Valley, actually has the bulk of the water rights to the Colorado River in California. So California has a right to 4.4 million acre feet of water from the Colorado River. And of those 4.4 million acre feet, the Imperial Irrigation District has rights to 3.1 million acre feet. So the Met looks like the 800-pound gorilla when you're talking about municipal water supplies. But when you talk about the broader river basin, the really powerful governmental entity in California is the Imperial Irrigation District. Is it too powerful? <laughs> is it too powerful? Um, I guess that depends on what you mean by power. Imperial Irrigation District is a critical part of the United States of America's food security. Uh, Imperial grows... A lot of the vegetables that we eat every day, just about every American eats Colorado River water every day that comes from that region at the sort of southern end of the Colorado River. So that food security issue is really, really important. But Imperial Irrigation District has, because it has a, a, a very senior priority right, so it has a very early priority right to that water, and because it has a right to so much water, it is an enormously powerful irrigation district. And in order to sort of bring it to the table when we're trying to negotiate about shortage can be difficult because there are much less powerful entities in the river who have much junior priority rights to water and to, to rights to a less secure supply that's easier to cut. And to find leverage on an entity like the Imperial Irrigation District can be really difficult. If we keep seeing climate change in the path that it's taking, are we going to have a water problem down the road, a freshwater problem? That that problem is here now. Uh, we have a serious freshwater problem in the Western United States, and it is driven in part by climate change. So climate change, what you're seeing with climate change is 
you're seeing more frequent and more intense El Nino years. El Nino is a is a anomalous warming of the Pacific Ocean that changes climate patterns. It usually means wetter winters for the southwestern United States. And you would think, oh, well, well, that's good. It means we'll get more snowpack. But the problem with climate change has been that even though our winters are are relatively wet, they're very short and they're very hot. And because they're so short and they're so hot, most of that water, even though we're getting the snowpack, it's not reaching the river. So we're getting about 90% of our normal snowpack in the last couple of decades, but we're only getting about 30% of the runoff, meaning only about 30% is hitting the river. And so climate change is definitely taking a problem we were likely to have anyway. We were going to have water disputes in the Western United States in an arid region with a growing population, no matter what. But climate change is definitely making the problem worse and making it move much faster. And that problem is upon us right now. These serious negotiations we are having right now about shortage in the Colorado River Basin. But for climate change, we might not be having these conversations uh, until much later down the road. Climate change is forcing us to have really difficult conversations and make difficult decisions and decide our priorities about water use right now. Well, Rhett, we need to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu slash interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by Rhett Larson. He's the professor of water law at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And we're talking about running out of water. <laughs> we joke about it, but how close are we? Well, I, I would say that there's, I am an, I am an optimist. So uh, there are definite, definitely more pessimistic people in this, uh, in this sphere than I am. Uh, our history has told us that we will find solutions to this. There is a reason that we first found uh, ways to live with each other outside of families and tribes along the banks of desert rivers. So our civilizations, our laws were born on the banks of the Nile and the Tigris and the Euphrates and the Indus. We learned to live with each other along desert rivers. I still believe that that past will dictate a bright future for us. But right now, we should be really, really worried. If you live in the southwestern United States, water should be the most important thing on your mind right now. And while it's unlikely in the near, near future to, to affect your tap, 
what it will do is that you're watching a lot of your farmers, a lot of farmers who are your neighbors are dealing with some really difficult circumstances right now. And they're facing crisis situations. They're looking at possible cuts. There's a lot of uncertainty in the future. And you might think, well, that doesn't have a lot to do with me, but it has everything to do with you because you're going to pay for that uncertainty and that risk in the grocery store. So when your milk prices and your vegetable prices and your beef prices, when they all go up, they're going to be driven by this drought. And that drought is where the average person, the non-farmer, is going to feel it as they're going to feel it in the grocery store. And you're going to feel it in other ways as well, because if we're expecting farmers to address this issue, if we're expecting farmers who use, depending on where you're at in the basin, between 70 and 80% of the water supply goes to irrigated agriculture, we need farmers to be out in front when it comes to leading on conservation and efficiency. But if we're expecting farmers to lead in that way, then cities, towns, municipalities, industry, we have to show a good faith effort on conservation, that those farmers aren't going to conserve all of that water just so that we can waste it. So if we're going to show that good faith effort, it is going to mean things like a lot less non-productive turf, a lot more desert scaping of your yards, uh, a lot more efficiency when it comes to your water use and your appliances, and being much more conscientious about fixing leaky pipes, those sorts of things. Well, there's a lot to do. Well, one of the things that I've read about is the loss of stormwater. Uh, we don't have systems in place to catch the amount of stormwater that we get, and a lot of it just washes out into the open. What progress is being made in that realm, and what's the problem? Well, stormwater is, uh, is a complicated issue because you need the appropriate infrastructure to be able to manage it and invest in it. Some communities will have combined sewer systems where their storm sewers flow in uh, to their sanitation sewers. Others will have separate storm sewers with municipal separate storm sewer systems. Uh, but the way that we can, and this becomes a problem because climate change, the, the most important thing, the biggest threat that climate change poses to us is water variability. It changes the drought flood cycle so that we have much more extreme droughts and we have much more extreme floods, which means mitigating and storing those floodwaters uh, for drought periods becomes a more important part of our policy. Now, what can we do? Investing in improved infrastructure for stormwater management is a big part of it. And part of that might be investing in mechanisms that allow us to manage our stormwater for purposes of groundwater recharge. So as we dig more and more wells, as we take more and more of our groundwater, we need to recharge those. And so if we find ways to divert our stormwater into uh, groundwater recharge facilities or groundwater, uh, re uh, groundwater storage facilities, those might be the best way for us to sort of improve our stormwater management while at the same time mitigating the overdraft of our groundwater. How does the average person, or in our cases, most of our listeners are lawyers, attorneys, and judges, how do we get involved in this process and help the conversation move as well as the infrastructure and, this, and taking the steps we need to protect groundwater, to start capturing stormwater, to do all the things that are necessary to conserve? Well, lawyers, I think, play a really important role because the law interacts in a whole variety of ways with our water management. Now, the most obvious way is in actual water law. So who owns the water, who controls it, the buying and the selling of water. There's another obvious way in which lawyers can get involved, and that's on environmental law. So the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, being able to manage those regulatory systems and ensure that people are in compliance because contaminated water affects all of our water security. 
There are other ways, though, that lots of lawyers can be involved in this in the way that they're practicing law. Part of that is with land use lawyers, wildcat subdivisions, unapproved subdivisions. These are oftentimes don't have access to uh, appropriate water supplies. So lawyers who are responsible when we're talking about land use development and making sure that there are secured water supplies and that we have transparent transactions in real estate so that people know about their water supplies. Real estate development in ways that are responsible and are smart or integrating smart growth concepts, I think, are an important part of how we manage our water resources. Public utility law is a really important way in which we manage our public resources. How we're setting rates for water services allows for reinvestment into our water infrastructure, creates more incentives for water conservation. And then in just the sense that lawyers can be good citizens, which is you would be shocked, especially I think in the Western United States, we think, oh, well, the people that I'm voting for is we have an election coming up. The people that I'm voting for, these these aren't water officials, but your governor is an important water official. Your attorney general is an important water official. Your city and town council, your mayor, they are important water officials. The members of your corporation commission are important water officials. All of these people make decisions that are essential to responsible water management. And so the more that good citizens who understand the law and are devoted to protecting our resources are either running for those offices or voting for the right people in those offices. Uh, That's a great way to further water security. That's an excellent point. What role does desalinization have in this? I mean, these plants, from what I understand, take, you know, 20 years to build. Well, Again, I, I'm I'm an optimist, and that includes being a desalination optimist. Uh, I do think desalination will ultimately form an important part of our water portfolio. No one reform uh, is going to get us out of the problem that we're in right now. So we're not going to be able to conserve our way out of this problem. We're not going to be able to augment our way out of this problem. It will take a variety of different pr- approaches combined in order to resolve our water uh, our our water challenges. But desalination is part of it. And people say, well, desalination is is too expensive. Well, in the 1980s, we could produce a single cubic meter of fresh water from seawater with about 35 kilowatts. But the best systems in the world right now, the kinds of systems that you see in the Yobregat in Spain and Jamen in China and Ashkelon in Israel, the Carlsbad plant in California, these plants are producing a single cubic meter of fresh water from seawater at about 2.5 kilowatts. So the technology has come a long way and is going to be more viable. Historically, the only nations that use desalination at large scale were really energy rich, really water poor countries like the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia. But that's changed and you're seeing more and more countries invest in desalination. I think that's probably a good thing. But desalination still has its costs and its risks. There are definitely environmental costs, not just with the energy that you're consuming and how it might aggravate climate change, but in the way that you're disposing of your brine waste. And then there are the costs associated with it. No matter how cheap you make desalination, it's not going to be as cheap as a well you can drill in your backyard. So even if you have, you know, let's take the Carlsbad plant as an example. You know, the Carlsbad plant can sell a single acre foot of water at something like $2,000 an acre foot. Well, right now, the Gila River Indian community is agreeing to leave water behind uh, Hoover Dam and getting paid about $400 an acre foot. So you're seeing the difference in price right there. No farmer can economically farm on $2,000 an acre foot. So desalination will play an important part of our future, but by itself isn't going to solve our problem. Are these desalinization plants private or government, or are they now utility? What's the role that they're going to play in society? 
Well, it depends on how you develop them, but most of them get developed in some form of a public-private partnership. So there's some concession contract between a municipal water provider or a group of municipal water providers who will enter into a contract that's a build, design, operate, or a build, operate, transfer, public-private partnership deal with a company like Poseidon, the one that designed and operates the, the plant in Carlsbad. So most of these desalination plants get developed in that way. But it also depends on what country you're in. Here in the United States, we do tend to rely more on the public-private partnership model. But Israel, which Israel's been a leader in desalination for decades, theirs has been relying on, on private industry for a lot of the design and implementation issues. But ultimately, the water supply is owned and distributed by the government. Rhett, at this time, we're going to take a second quick break here to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went... To a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by Professor Rhett Larson. He's Professor of Waterlot, ASU, Sander Day O'Connor College of Law. You, know, you and I both live in desert areas, uh, Los Angeles, where around the area where I live, has been transformed into a oasis, certainly wastes a lot of water. What can a private individual do? I know you rattled off some things, but what are the more important things to do to conserve water individually? Well, at the individual level, I think it's important to just be a water literate uh, and water conscious person. A lot of the challenges associated with a Western water ethos is that we tend to live away from our water supply and it tends to be something that's hidden inside of pipes. And so just being a water literate and water conscious person goes a long way. Now, what can you do? One is to just embrace a desert lifestyle, which is living in the desert is beautiful. Deserts are beautiful things. Uh, there's no shame in living in a desert city. Our first cities were desert cities. And so embracing a desert lifestyle means landscaping your yard like it's a desert and maintaining it like it's a desert. Uh, most of your household level water, if you don't have a desert scaped yard, is going outdoors. And that doesn't need to be that way. Plant more plants that are adapted uh, to the climate that you're living in. The other is to be really conscious about leaks. We lose an enormous amount of water in this country just to leaky pipes. So be aware of leaks and fix leaks when you see them and when you find them. It's good for your water bill and it's good for the environment. It's good for our water security. 
making sure that you have, uh, you know, low flow toilets, low flow showers, the technology and our appliances has come a long way. So the most of the appliances we're using now are using much less water than the kinds of appliances that we were using, uh, you know, even just a decade ago. And then the other thing, which I think goes along with what I said earlier, you know, with respect to both lawyers and with respect to being water conscious is making sure that in times like this, when we're voting, that you push candidates for elected office, that they need to prioritize water. They need to be talking about water. We need to be asking them questions, serious, well-informed questions. And we, in the desert, you should not tolerate having a water illiterate person running for public office that plays an important role in water. If you're going to run for that office, you better be an informed person when it comes to water issues. Yeah, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. That was my next question. What, about pending legislation, what for water-centric issues? Let's talk about what the federal government's doing. Biden, EPA. Uh, there's a apparently a historic water infrastructure bill. Uh, how, what kind of progress are we seeing? And you know, there's a loaded question here, but how do we deal with these candidates? How do we get them educated in water? Well, the sort of legislation that I think are sort of at the front of a lot of people's mind, both the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act included money to address water issues. A lot of that money was directed at either facilitating the settlement of tribal water right claims. Uh, so for Native Americans who have claims to potentially a large amount of waters to facilitate the settlement of those claims in court, a lot of that money is also going towards offering to pay farmers for temporary rotational fallowing agreements where they're agreeing to leave some of their fields fallow and not take as much water in exchange for federal money. The resolution of tribal water right claims, I think, is a really important thing that we can invest our money in. I think that will go a long way. A lot of these tribes need more certainty. They need more investment in water infrastructure development. I think that these settlement agreements can help facilitate that while also conserving water. The rotational following agreements, the kind of money that's coming from the, the from Congress to pay farmers to leave fields fallow, I have mixed feelings about that because on the one hand, we're facing such huge challenges right now in negotiating how we share in shortage that buying us time is really valuable. And these temporary agreements to leave more water in the river, more water in the reservoir do buy us time. They help us come up with a, a better long-term, more durable agreement. But by themselves, they're insufficient because they're just temporary agreements. We can't pay farmers $400 an acre foot to leave water in the river on temporary agreements in perpetuity. That neither gives us the ability to plan long term, nor is it something that we can really afford to do. So I think we need to move towards a more durable long term solution. The other legislation that a lot of people are talking about right now is, is a bill before the U.S. Senate. Uh, about allowing the Colorado River Indian tribes to market their water into Arizona, to sell some of their water into central Arizona. That's a really complicated bill because California would obviously love to buy some of their water as well. There are other tribes within Arizona that are marketing their water rights to thirsty cities, and they're looking at Colorado River Indian tribes coming in as a new competitor in that market. So that bill is a really complicated, controversial bill about how the tribes get involved in this in this market. Now, on your question about what can we do to, to ensure having better sort of water literate candidates? Uh, you know, I wish I knew there's kind of a double-edged sword to our economic development in the West, which is, you know, for, for a long time, uh, our economies were driven so much by agriculture and mining 
that a lot of our business and civic leaders came from those sectors. They became our political leaders. And because they came from those sectors, they lived really close to the water. They came from mining, ranching, farming. Now our economies have diversified so much that, you know, healthcare and technology, that a lot more of our business and civic and political leaders are coming from sectors that aren't as connected with the water. And so I think more investment uh, in encouraging a water literate uh, electorate is something that allows our voters to then push those who are running for office to be more water literate. So maybe the answer is to not worry quite so much about our elected officials, but make the investment uh, in our education system to make sure that we have citizens that are able to ask those officials good questions. I have a couple more questions. I know that we're coming close to the end of the show, but let's go back in time a little bit when the United States tried building a canal across the country and the imbalance that we see in the floods and hurricanes and heavy weather in the east and the droughts in the west. I mean, you know, the pipe dream is literally a pipe between the two and let's shuttle the water. How realistic is that kind of thing? Well, as much of an optimist as I am about our, about our future, our water future, I confess I'm a pessimist about that plan. And here's why. First of all, as you're seeing right now in the Mississippi River Basin, there's a drought in the Mississippi that's making it difficult for barges to even move through the river. So the assumption that people in the east always have more than enough water just isn't true. They have their own drought issues. The Supreme Court decides water disputes between eastern states all the time. Just in recent years, uh, large water disputes between Tennessee and Mississippi, large water disputes between Georgia and Florida. So we think, oh, they always have more than enough water, but that's not necessarily true. Even the Great Lakes only have 1% recharge every year. So if you pulled more than 1% of the water in the Great Lakes out every year, eventually you drain the Great Lakes. So one is I don't think the East is quite as overflowing and abundant in water as we sometimes think they are. Number two is can we really build a large infrastructure project that depends on something as unpredictable and overwhelming as hurricanes and floods. We don't know when they're going to come. And when they do come, then we're going to have this infrastructure that might otherwise sit idle, all of a sudden become active and then try to move all of this water, which will be contaminated, need to be treated uh, into a system that, you know, needs to rely, you know, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year on a reliable water supply. Relying on water that comes from floods and storms isn't a terribly reliable way to do that. The other issue is a legal issue. Are the, are the people who own water rights in the eastern United States, I mean, they're not going to give us their water for free. We're going to have to buy it. To buy their water rights, we're going to have to buy their land rights, or we're going to have to enter into water leasing agreements with them. To take water off of that land and move it outside of the basin is likely in water law per se unreasonable. So we're going to face all kinds of legal issues. On top of the legal issues is the political issues. Water is a symbol of sovereignty. People are going to be reluctant to sacrifice water rights to other states and other citizens somewhere else when they see that water as a symbol of their own of their own sovereignty, of their own community. And then out on top of that, the economic limitations, which are water is just really, really heavy. And to move it a long way costs a lot of money because it requires a lot of energy. And to acquire all the, the land rights, all the easements for that pipeline it would be so expensive to build the pipeline and then so expensive to move the water that far that by the time it got to the end of the pipe, you'd have to charge people a lot of money just to just to just to meet the costs of the infrastructure. So I'm I'm pretty skeptical of a large pipeline like that. 
Right. That's one of the silliest questions I think I've ever asked. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what about contamination? I mean, here in the Los Angeles area and even especially in Orange County, there's some groundwater basins that are known to have uh, heavy chemical use because we have a large manufacturing arena that has been unregulated until rather recently in terms of time, and there's been a lot of contamination. That groundwater is contaminated. How do we deal with that in terms of being able to pull it out and use it as, as water to either irrigate or to drink? Well, the difficulty with water contamination is that we have the technology for the most part to address most contamination. The treatment plants are able to handle most of the sorts of normal contamination that you see in groundwater or in surface water. The problem is, is that once you've treated it to a usable level, have you spent so much money that now the only thing you can sell that water for is some premium water use? You can't just give it to a farmer uh, to put onto lettuce. Now you need to sell it to people who are, you know, they're making beer or they're, uh, you know, they're they're drinking water bottlers or they're making soft drinks. So that's one of the challenges with treatment is can we afford to treat it? The other is a simple liability issue, which is can you find the person who's responsible for that contamination and make them pay for the remediation? Now, there's a whole series of regulatory and statutory structures that can facilitate that kind of cleanup regime, whether it's CERCLA or state Superfund issues that allow for that kind of remediation or even citizen suit issues under things like the Clean Water Act or the Safe Drinking Water Act. But the real challenges I see coming when it comes to contamination are twofold. One are certain unregulated contaminants uh, that are really difficult for our technology to treat. And that's particularly true of endocrine disruptors, uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, a lot of those get into our systems. And because those chemicals are designed to get past the blood-brain barrier, they're very tiny chemicals and they're very difficult for us to filter out. And so those are, those I think are at the kind of cutting edge of what we're worried about. And the other is PFAS. Uh, PFAS is a really persistent chemical that you find all over the place. It's especially common in and around uh, airports or military installations. Um, but it's also in all kinds of things from uh, nonstick pans to, uh, you know, flame retardant clothing, all sorts of things, stain resistant fabrics. And this PFAS is a really persistent chemical in nature that's difficult to treat. And you're seeing more and more efforts to regulate PFAS in water because there are rising concerns about its carcinogenic effects. Wow. Scary all the way around. <laughs> well, Rhett, looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so I'd like to invite you to share your final thoughts about this discussion, as many millions more questions I have, and give us the opportunity to provide your contact information so our listeners can reach out to you to continue the discussion. And tell us a little more about your book. Sure. So uh, anybody, I, if you're listening to this and thinking this guy sure sounds like he is very passionate about water, uh, I am. And I'm so passionate. I am happy to talk to anybody about it. So you can find me uh, at on the website for Arizona State University, Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, where you can find my email address, uh, my bio and my phone number. I'm happy to talk uh, more about these issues and to be helpful in any way. Uh, my book uh, from Oxford University Press is Just Add Water, Solving the World's Problems Using Its Most Precious Resource. And that book is basically saying why just about every problem on Earth is a water problem. Everything, not just from climate change, but things like racial discrimination, gender inequality, immigration, armed conflict, pandemics, all of these have water components. And that book is about examining how water plays a role in virtually every societal problem. And I guess as just a closing comment, one of the things I love about being a water lawyer is that water is 
everything that gold or wheat or oil is. It is a valuable, saleable commodity. But water is also everything that faith and music and art and nature and family and sovereignty is. Water is just special. We feel about it differently. We don't squirt each other with gasoline in the summertime. We don't throw lumps of coal at each other in the wintertime. And we don't baptize people in uranium. It's just a unique resource. And that unique way that we feel about it is what makes it so legally complex, but such an enriching thing to study. Well, and I'll add to that, that it makes up a huge part of our own bodies. And without it, we're not going to live. Absolutely. Well, Red, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for your comments and uh, look forward to seeing what comes up in the next election. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Well, here's a few of my thoughts about today's topic. Living in Southern California, looking out my office window, I see a lot of green. And it's green because we've put the water there to make it that way. Certainly, some of the mountains are green. Right now, we've got snow for the first time in Southern California in our mountains this year. It's glad, good to see. But like Professor Larson said, we're in the crisis now. Not enough people understand water law. Certainly, today's discussion has been eye-opening, at least for me, on many points. But there's a lot of things that all have to be done at the same time. and We've got to solve this problem sooner rather than later. So pitch in, help out at home, talk about water waste when you see it, identify it and report it, and let's all do our part individually because we're part of the solution. Well, that's it for Craig's rant, not too rough today, but let me know what you think. And if you do like what you've heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at legaltalknetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.